Wow, what a week. We, um, we had so much going on this week, and so I just want to share a little bit before we get started this morning about what God's doing, not only in our students. Um, I got to watch that from afar, and so um, it was good just to see God work in their lives. It's good to see leadership step up, too, for Emily and Cooper, the Barkers, um, leading that out. It was so great to see that, and it was so great to see not only that um, students responded to the gospel, but more than anything, um, they came together and learned God's word. And so, uh, are y'all fired up? Yeah. yeah! This morning, I want to also tell you about um, the last week and just um, how grateful Brennan and I really are uh, last Sunday, just to see um, the kindness of this church and just the, the overwhelming um, gratitude that was shown. Uh, first off, we had no idea. We really didn't. And so it was not one of those things where we acted like um, we were surprised, but we truly were. We were surprised. And so to get my parents here and all this stuff, I mean, we got to meet my parents. Never in a million years I think that they would be up on stage um, in the most passive-aggressive way as a, a Texas football player. I can say this. You're right, Dad. I was pretty average. But thank y'all. It really was. Um, it was. It was. It was. It was very special. So thank y'all. And um, what God's doing in this, in this area in the South right now, and and through Asbury University or college, and you see this 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 revival that has started and that is now uh, spread to other colleges, to other five other colleges, and you see this these this the the, the idea of revival. And I just want to just take just a second and just talk just for a second on that. Because I think that a lot of us, the minute that we see something happen, there's five people behind writing a blog, posting something about how that's not of God or that's not where the Spirit is. And I want you to know to, this morning that we truly believe as a church that ha is founded in roots of college students, that every great movement of, of God has always started with college students and it's, or, or young people, and you see this, this awakening that has taken place throughout history, and we're just praying that that happens again today. And I think that the right place, the right posture is, is to be in a, a place where we say, God, if you wanna come and do that, we wanna be open to that. If you go back and read the actual transcript of the, of the chapel, from that college, you're gonna see that it was nothing special. All he did was call them to pray at the end. And God started to work just through that. There was no, there was no haze, there's no intelligent lighting, there's no words, they didn't even have PowerPoint for crying out loud. But you see the fact that God, in a special way, has done something unique. And so we ask that the same spirit of renewal, the same sense of his presence to come near to us as well. Not as an event, but as a stirring of something new, of renewal in us. Because I think each one of us can learn and grow from that. And so yes, there's gonna be a lot of people that follow. Whenever there's a show, we're gonna talk a little bit about this this morning, the idea that, that there is always gonna be people standing there making it something that it's not. But our prayer is as a church this morning that we can see 
God do amazing things in us individually. Because let's be honest, God can bring revival not only collectively to a church, but he can do that at your own home. He can do that in our own bedrooms, our living rooms. And so my prayer is this morning that we would see the presence of God in our own lives. And that we would see that there is a powerful thing that happens when people pray. It doesn't have to be anything else than that. We don't have to put it, we don't have to put it into a box of what camp you're in, your denomination, affiliation, whatever. The fact is we can just see people come and pray. And so this morning, I'm gonna pray for us as we open God's word and get into week two of This Changes Everything. Let's pray. Um, God, this morning, Lord, I pray that you would be, as you always are, God, that you would illuminate this text. God, I've read, this, I've read this text so many different times. It brings so many different things to my own life. God, I thank you, God, that you are working and moving in our, in our country, college students. And God, this morning, I pray that you would bring this same sense of renewal to us so that we would have a hunger for your word, we would be, have a hunger for your presence of, and that we would live the gospel out in a new way. God, we don't want to define it by anything that it's not. But more of you is always a good thing. God, and we must become less and you must become more. And so this morning I pray that you would call us to action. You would call us to something new and bigger. For God, we love you, and we, as a church collectively, God, wherever you're at, that's where we want to be. So God, we just ask that you would come and bring your text to life. God, as we glean, as we look inward, God, as we lay everything before you to serve you and know you better, in your name we do pray. Amen. Well, if you remember a few weeks back, two weeks ago, we are in the second week of the sermon series, This Changes Everything. Now, why did we call it This Changes Everything? It's because there are seven signs actually found in the book of John. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Those seven signs really are miracles, if we know anything about it. And Nathan started us off two weeks ago in John chapter 2 with the water to wine. Now, these seven signs or miracles are here to tell us something deeper, something greater about the person of who Jesus is. Now, if you know anything about the Gospels, right, there's the first three, we call them the Synoptic Gospels, and they basically have the same story. In other words, they kind of the same perspective, different writers, obviously, but then there's John. John just does his own thing, and so John is building another case of who this person, Jesus, is. You see it like this, is that in the synoptics, it's whenever you see a miracle or a sign, it really is about the coming of the kingdom that's about to come. But with John, it really is about the coming of the king. This has more to do with the characteristic of God than it does his power or the fact that he did all of these miraculous signs. It has to do so that we can know him, we can know what he's about. John is taking a different angle 
And there's these seven signs. Strangely enough, there's more miracles that, that occur that we know of. But John has highlighted these seven. And so we're going to jump into the last part of John 4 addressing the second sign and the healing of the government son's official, official son. Um, this morning, we want to look at the, the second sign, second of those signs, and we'll discover that the sign, these signs will go past the what's in it for me. A lot of times we come to church as consumers, and you're going to see that's really at the heart of what God's talking about here, that we don't want to be consumers of the word. We don't want to be consumers of church. We want to have an active part in it. We want to have faith that's beyond that. After Jesus performed the turning of the water to the wine in John 2, he returned to Jerusalem and to the, the Passover feast. And John tells us that while, we were, while he was there, he did many signs. And as a result, John tells us that some people believed in Jesus, but that belief proved to be shallow and short-lived. So to understand this message, we've got to look at something that happened just right before in John chapter 4. Whenever, whenever Jesus goes and meets with the woman at the well, many of us know that story. And you're going to see that really that story about this quick little healing was really connected to the story of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. Sometime later, Jesus went back to Galilee, this time through Samaria, where he had encountered the Samarian woman, the woman at the well in Sychar. It is notable that as far as we know it, Jesus did not perform any signs here in Samaria, but yet, because of the testimony of the woman, Jesus met at the well, this person, Jesus. And the people of Sychar asked Jesus to remain there for two days. And because of the words that Jesus spoke to them over the next few days, many came to believe that Jesus was the savior of the world, found in verse 42. Now the faith of the people of Sychar expressed two notable things here. First off, it's very interesting that the Samaritans or the, the people of Sychar, they hated the Jews and the Jews hated them. And the Jews referred to them, which is not the nicest term, but as, as being half-breeds, most literal. And there's many reasons that I could get into, but basically they were at odds each other and you saw racism rampant between these two people groups. But the more relevant thing today that's very notable about this is that they believed without the need for Jesus to perform any miracles. So these pagan people of Samaria believed that Jesus not only, not only was who he said he was, he didn't have to do any miracles, he just showed up. He talked about this woman, he read not only her story, he knew his story, but he spoke into her life. Jesus was able to, to convey to the people where they were able to take it at, the, at his word. After their two days here in Samaria, Jesus finally made his way back to Galilee, about 20 miles. And he was welcomed by the people there, but not necessarily for the right reasons. Jesus had performed his first sign to the Galileans in the town of Cana. And since many of the people from Galilee had also traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover, 
they had also seen some signs and wonders that he had done there. Have you ever gone and seen somebody do something for the wrong reasons? Have you ever been to an event that got completely out of control? Where in other words, it's first intended purpose quickly became something else. I'm quickly reminded of, unfortunately, I was a part of a church that many years ago was, was asked, we asked a political figure or a political figure asked to come speak at the church. And that's when the show started. That's when I, I should have known it three days out when I am up in the crawl space, our whole staff, with the secret service. They're wanting to see every piece of our property and they're wanting to go through everything. And, and by the time that that candidate, that person came and spoke, at some point I realized we had lost the plot. And this was gross. The reason that we worship and we come together had been completely distorted and perverted. And it became more of a political rally and I was not excited to be there. My wife was super disturbed. That's the nice way to put it. I tell you that story because, not because I'm proud of it, but because it, at the beginning it was like, yeah, we can allow this, this person to come and speak because he's asked to. But over time, it became this zoo. It was a show. And we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people show up beyond the church's normal schedule. And I, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say that morning, Jesus was talked about, but it definitely was not the purpose of us gathering. It was definitely not the purpose of, of, of the saints coming together to worship God. Sometimes there is a sidetrack. And so just as Jesus was going back to his hometown to do, perform this other miracle we're about to see, he is quickly welcomed and everybody is excited to see him, but you can see it was not for the right reasons. He had just been in Jerusalem. They had all seen him do all these miracles, and they all of a sudden wanted to count him as one of their own. And they wanted to basically have bragging rights that this was the person. This is their boy. This morning, I want you to know that it's very easy whenever we have somebody that we feel like we're close to that we can exploit. And that's exactly what his hometown was doing. So as he goes back, this story takes place. I'm gonna read it to you. I'm gonna jump back to verse 43 just so we can get the whole context. So let's read. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when they came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the, at the feast, for they had, too, had gone to the feast. So they came again to Cana in Galilee, where they had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and ask him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my son dies. 
Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that had been spoken to him and went on his way. And when he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour that he began to get better, and they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this is the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all the household This was the second sign that Jesus did when they had come from Judea to Galilee. Okay, there's a lot here. The account of this sign begins with a man who comes to Jesus because he needs Jesus to do something for him. For him, Jesus is merely the means to an end. The desperation of someone advocating for their son, you'll go to any lengths. But by the end of the account, the same man and his entire family had come to a much under, a deeper understanding of who Jesus was and he put his faith in him. Our prayer this morning is that we would, as we study this sign together, this miracle together, wherever you are in your walk with God, or maybe you're in a place where you are even doubting who God is, that you would see a deeper, fuller understanding who Jesus is. We are introduced here to a man who could only be identified as an official. He likely had served Herod. Yeah, that Herod, who ruled Galilee on behalf of the Romans there in Capernaum. This is the same Herod who later involved in both the beheading of John the Baptist and was there at the crucifixion of Jesus. We're told that whether this official is a a Jew or a Gentile, although most of us think that he's a Jew. His son was ill, and the underlying Greek here suggests that he had been ill for some time. Now that he was about to die, it was easy to understand that the official's desperation was evident. In that day, a fever with a, and a child was not good. And beyond that, 50% of kids, it's believed during this time, that had a fever or an ongoing illness did not li- live past the age of five. So this was a serious matter, and this kid was on his deathbed. As you can see, that he made a difficult trip from Capernaum on a map, when you look at it, it's only 17 miles, but it's not the easiest, so it's mountainous. And so as he desperately got to this person, Jesus, you see your ear sense of desperation. The, the official approaches Jesus and he asks Jesus to travel back with him to his home in Capernaum and heal his son. Jesus' reply seemed a bit harsh at first glance when he said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. If you look at that Greek, the two yous are both plural. So he wasn't just talking to about the the person. He was talking about all of them, the group of people, everyone from Galilee. A better term would be y'all. 
So Jesus is addressing the entire crowd here. And while we can't be certain, it seems most likely that the crowd consisted primarily of Jews. Later, when he wrote the first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul points this out, that that many were looking for signs. And that's how they actually saw the belief. That's how Jews saw this. That's in 1 Corinthians 1.22, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. So you see, this was a part of what they were used to. They were part of seeing that. And just as whenever my, home, my last church put on a full spectacle, the Jews were used to coming to that. They were there for the show, but Jesus was pushing past that to something greater. Or maybe they wanted to see some indication that Jesus was going to fulfill their desires to start the coup and overthrow the Roman government. I think that even the official had initially been approached to Jesus and he probably didn't even understand. He probably just saw the fact that Jesus could do it all. But Jesus was gonna have no part in any sign that would serve those selfish desires. I also think that Jesus is doing something here that he had done with Mary when he performed the first sign, for he was testing this official to see if his faith was in the person of Jesus or only if what Jesus could do for him. Our faith needs to be founded not only in the knowledge who God is, who Jesus is, but the trust should show up that we fully trust him in every situation. We're gonna see that unfold here in just a second. Jesus certainly could have complied with that request, but one of the things that we see in Jesus' ministry that he never seems to be in a hurry. After taking to the woman at the well, he spent two more days there. And so here he literally just phones it in. He just calls it and says, you know what? Your son will live. And it seems abrupt, it seems strange, but I think Jesus is doing something here. As the official heads home, he meets the servant to tell him that his son is recovering. And guess what? The fever began to leave at exactly the moment, one in the afternoon. And as a result, the entire family comes to know Jesus. And they know that this was not just a means to an end, but it was about something bigger, and the bigness of who God was. By performing this sign, Jesus overcomes three perceived obstacles in the mind of the official. The first one is the obstacle of distance. When you think about Jesus showing up and healing someone, he always has to be there close by. If you watch televangelists, I hope you don't, and you see somebody, quote, being healed, what you see is it's always right there. And Jesus, 17 miles away, said your boy will live. The second thing is this, is the, the obstacle that could, probably was in the government official's mind was death itself. The idea that this was something that they hadn't seen Jesus do. It was early on in the ministry of Jesus. And this is, this is not something that Jesus was known for then. But what you do see is a father that was in complete desperation. He was wanting to see that God this person that they had heard about 
Even though he entered into the, this initially, probably not understanding the full faith, he quickly arose in his own faith. God showed out. The third is the prejudices. What do I mean by that? This official had been, what? He was a, had a seedy affiliation with, the, the, with King Herod, and he was affiliated with a group that were hated by the Jews. And probably this guy knew that he was hated by the Jews and there's no way that someone between the chasm between him and the Jews that he would be healed, he, that he would, his request would even be listened to. So what is the point of all this sign? I think it comes down to, there's some overarching themes here, but there's really two main things going on here. Number one is that Jesus is not the means to an end, but he is the end. He is not the main character in the story, but he is the story. He is our reward. He is our prize. I've told, I've told students this for many, many years, that if you were to go to heaven, and when, when you do see God in heaven, would you be more excited to be in heaven or the fact that Jesus was there? This morning, church, I think that we need to see that heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Heaven is the, the place that he dwells, but the fact is, is that he is the main focus. He is our reward. He's our prize. You know, you can look at many signs throughout history, and you'll see many allegories that would tell of this. You would see many stories. You know, you can look at Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, and you quickly realize that they tell something that's bigger. Here we see this, that this faith that Jesus is asking us to happen really comes down to two things, and that is the second reason. There are two types of faith that are being unfolded here. The first one that I've coined, feeble faith. Feeble faith is the kind of faith that says, what have you done for me? Or more, more honestly, what have you done for me lately? This sort of faith, kind of faith, onlooker's faith, Jesus is really skeptical of that because people are more concerned what they're gonna get out of it than seeing the, the true prize that's really in front of them. Their faith demands proof, and there's a show-me mentality. Devotion is subjective to the situation, the mood, and the overall quality of life. What is, what is going on in my life? That's that feeble faith. And the second is what I've called foundational faith. That is a growing faith that's not predicated on our current situation or need. The fact is, we just trust. And we can talk about situations in different seasons of life and see that there is ups and downs, there are ebbs and flows, but the faith remains in a person with foundational faith. Why? Because they see the author of life, not only holding this world up, but the person that knows best in charge, that person that is for us, and that he came close to us. He's not distant. He's close. And he came here and walked on this earth. 
So what do these signs reveal about Jesus? Number one, I want you to see that he's not limited by time and space. We see that in this, this miracle. When the, when the crowd gathered to hear what Jesus said to the official, there's no evidence that any of them went with the official to see whether Jesus had really healed the son. That would have required too much time and effort from a group that had just looked to Jesus to, to entertain them. Other than the official and the family, we see no evidence that anyone else even knew that Jesus, what he had done here. Just like the first sign was performed so that the four disciples would believe, Jesus did the second sign so that the official and his family would believe. And they asked him by the time it was over to do it for the right reasons. So God is not limited by our understanding of time and space. So I'm going to blow your minds just, to, just for just a second, but I used to have a, a college professor that used to put it this way, this like the fact that God, in his infinite wisdom, created time and space continuum. So that means that literally he is outside of that time and that space. And so if you look at it that way, Jesus is there. God is looking at the whole timeline of history. And so just at the same time that we are here, he is also looking at Jesus on the cross. He's looking at the whole thing happening at the same time because he's outside of that. I don't understand that, but I do understand this, is that at the same exact time that we see, he sees us where we're at, he also is looking at Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for all the things that we've done wrong. And it makes it make sense. There had to be someone and we're recipients of that for those that believe. He's not limited by time or space. Second thing is that he is the giver of life. He wants, he's the one that holds that in his hand. The, the, the fact of death, you don't really see anybody, there's no smoke and mirrors here. What you see is, is, is somebody that, when you bring someone back to life or was on the verge of death, that speaks volumes. He's the giver of life. He's the one that holds it in his hand. And just as we can see and pray for people to be healed, you're gonna see that ultimately that still has to go through this giver, the one that holds life in his hand. Third thing is that he desires for us to have a growing faith in him in all seasons of life. When things are great, a lot of times we take that and we put that on ourselves and say, that's what I did. And then when everything's falling apart and there's heartache, there's difficult times, we see our, ourselves cry out to God and say, why don't you hear me? In all different seasons of life, in all different timelines, you see, God is giving himself the same constant, not only attention, but he's doing it all in his sovereign grace and is in his wisdom. This last one is very interesting. The, the result of his faith was immediate, but the reward from the faith takes time. So if you see, as this official goes back, he spends the night he didn't even see his boy until the next day. 
So obviously he trusted enough to go ahead and lay down, take a nap. He came in in desperation, but he trusted and believed. Where then when he met the officials and said, he is well, he lived. The result of our faith, our trusting in who God is, is immediate. But the reward of our faith, sometimes we don't see that at the same time. So let me just give you some action steps this morning on things that I think that God has shown us through this text. Number one, am I trusting in Jesus for what he can do for me or am I trusting in him because of what he has already done on the cross? God wants, God wants to see this morning when the work was finished at Calvary, it was enough. When things are going great or when things are going bad, the biggest indicator for us to see what our faith is doing is the fact that we know that ultimately he still knows best. Second one is this. How is my relationship with Jesus impacted when he does not answer my prayers the way I want? This is a tough one because this one hits home and it's personal. Third thing, am I a religious consumer? This is an invitation for all of us that whenever I see people in churches and part of congregations, what you see is that they are in the stands a lot of times, and yet there's all these things happening on the field. This morning is an invitation to have faith that says, we don't want you to be in the stands. We want you to come onto the field and be a part. We want you to be able to see that God wants to work through you that there's a tangible love of not only serving God, but surrendering your rights and living that out for the gospel, regardless where that might take you. Now, that's a dangerous prayer, because for some of us, whenever we pray that, you're going to see that God is going to take you places you never dreamed of. You never could imagine where he would take you and ask you to do or ask you to serve but what you do see is when you're on the ground level and you're in the middle of ministry, there's hope, there's satisfaction. In the stands, it's always on to, you're always waiting for the next thing. You always want the next thing, whatever that, that show might be, the feeling that you might get from a weekend like the students has had. Last night they said that the last thing I was able to catch last night's large group session, one of the things that they said was, at this time, this can just be a moment or it can be a movement. In other words, we can take this back home to our homes. We can live this out. We can see our campuses change. The last thing is, you take Jesus at his word. Even when you fully don't understand when it doesn't make sense, do you just take him for what he has? The faith, the foundational faith is rooted in the fact that we trust God even when we don't understand, even when it hurts. I want to end by just reading Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. I want to put this in context as we kind of move to a, a time. So in Asbury, 
If you go back and watch the chapel service that started this revival, you're going to see that all he did was read this and call the college to come and pray. That's it. There was no smoke. There was no lights. That's it. No band, keyboard, guitar. That was it. Stripped down. But he talked about how that love must be in action. And he he encouraged people to love, that love should be a verb, but then it should be taken to those around. And he gives this whole thing. He says this, starting verse 9. Love must be sincere, must hate what's evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keeping your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in the Lord, patient, reflection, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do those and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people in low position. Do not be conceited. And so when you talk about a foundational faith that is constantly growing in the knowledge of who God is, I want you to know this morning that there is an action that we have to have is love. And just as the college and their chapel time that they have to go to is asked to come and pray that their love would become an action this morning I'm going to ask that we also would have a love that loved our city the same way that didn't think of ourselves because what that is that's a foundational faith that's one that's understanding that God ultimately knows best and that we learn to trust him at his word And while this seems really simple, I find myself every day struggling with verses 9 through 16. So this morning, I'm going to ask us to pray, not only for ourselves that we can put love into action, but then also so that it would be rooted in a foundational faith, not just something that's here one moment, gone the next. My prayer is, is that each one of us would see that this sign did one thing. It called people to a deeper understanding of what faith was. God, when my world's falling apart and there is a broken, fragile, fallen world that we live in that's not immune to hurt and pain, divorce, death, there's difficult things that go on in our in our lives. And becoming a Christian and following after Christ doesn't reverse or change that, but it does give us hope because our foundational faith is rooted in the fact that we know the one that holds the whole world. This morning, let us pray to have a love that loves the world even in the fact 
that it's probably not gonna love us back. Be vulnerable even when it doesn't really even care about us. That is a difficult thing to do. That is the thing that I find myself in, trying to learn how to do that on a daily basis. Let's pray. God, as a church this morning, Lord, we just, we come to you. We ask that we can pray for clarity, God, how to live this out. God, give us a foundational faith that is, that is rooted in who you are, the attributes of you. God, don't let us just get caught up with whatever's happening. All the fads that we see sometimes in church. But God, we do know one thing is when you are moving, I pray that it would begin with us. I pray that it would spur us on to something bigger and greater. God, just as you healed in this story, God, we see that you're above time and space. But God, I pray you would come and meet with us now. God, that we would see who you are, that we would be able to walk in the knowledge of who you are. God, give us a faith that is ever-growing. Give us a faith that knows you, trusts you, and a love that lives that out for the world around us. God, I pray as we... we sing and respond. I pray that it's a time that would be introspective. God, we would look at our own lives. You would grow us in our faith this morning. God, we pray for our church and our city. God, I pray that you would bring newness and freshness, revival that only can come from you. In your name we pray.